let's visualize the holy beings in front, especially uh, the Buddha and, of course, Shantideva. And uh, recall why we are taking refuge. So think for a minute, why are you taking refuge? And then remember that you're surrounded by all the holy beings, uh, surrounded by all the sentient beings, and you're leading them also in taking refuge and generating bodhicitta. So let's generate our motivation. And recall that Shantideva's words may be pointed and may hit exactly at our sensitive points, but he's doing it with compassion to help us. And if we can open our minds and really listen to what he's saying and apply it, it will help us tremendously along the path and in our day-to-day life, too. So cultivating fortitude is a must if we're going to cultivate great love and great compassion, which are necessary to cultivate bodhicitta. So let's have a strong determination to work on our anger and irritation, jealousy, spite, and so on. And instead to open our hearts with compassion to others. Understand that We're all in the same boat of samsara. And for people who are in the same boat, not getting along is bad for everybody.
in that way, turn our mind towards bodhicitta. And even though it's contrived, or maybe contrived, we're planting those seeds in our mind, and that's important. So may that be our motivation for sharing the teachings this morning. Our mind of afflictions is very devious and we can very easily think, I am working with bodhicitta to benefit all sentient beings, but there's some people who are getting in my way of doing so. And there are people who are destroying the Dharma. So I better do something about those people because otherwise I won't be able to benefit anybody else. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like a very good reason to set some booby traps for other people and to talk badly about them behind their back because we're doing it for the sake of the Dharma. So we have to be very careful of the way our mind thinks sometimes because it will invent the most extraordinary reasons for doing non-virtue. And we just go along with those reasons. They seem quite reasonable. So walking over here this morning, Venerable Dickey was commenting to me about how uh, she's been reviewing the this chapter, and we've been on it since June, and that, uh, you know, there's so much in it. And that's really true. I mean, this is a chapter really to, to sink into because it speaks about so many of... Uh, the things that take us away from Dharma practice and destroy our merit and destroy our our attempts to practice. Yeah, and so it's good because she said she's reading over the verses, and every time you read the verses, you see something new in them. Yeah. And so this process of familiarizing our mind with what the text is saying, not just by reading it, but really reflecting on it, meditating on it, applying it to situations we've encountered in, in our own life to create some familiarity with, with uh, these antidotes. All of that is very, very important so that... Uh, when something occurs in our life, we have that habit set up and we can apply the antidote quickly. Otherwise, you know, 
We may not even know the verses by heart, but if we don't reflect on them in our meditation, then when something happens in our life, we don't remember them. Yeah? And it's like, oh, I'm getting mad. I'm, I can see I'm getting mad. And uh, yes, I remember that anger uh, is not conducive for my practice, but I'm really furious at this person. And no thought of an antidote even enters the mind. And instead come all of our justifications for why our anger is valid and true and the other person deserves it. And it's for their benefit anyway. Yeah. So it's really important, you know, to, to familiarize the mind with these, the meaning of these verses and try it out. You know, try them out in our own meditation by thinking of situations we've been in. Okay. Yeah. Because that, that often happens, doesn't it? You can see your mind getting out of control, and then it's like, oh, what do I do? What's the antidote for this? Anyway, I'm not quite sure what I'm feeling anyway, so I can't apply an antidote if I don't know what the affliction is. Yeah. But I can tell you all the verses, and I can tell you how bad certain afflictions are, uh, for your practice. And I might even tell you the affliction, the remedy for the afflictions, because I've memorized them. But in my own life, gone, gone, gone beyond. Okay, but not gone to, in the right way. <laughs> okay. So I think I've said before, you know, when we're really practicing these verses and, you know, just even when we read them, something should, like, hit, you know. If these things go in too easily, we're not getting it. Because, let's face it, I mean, attaining awakening is the opposite of what we've been doing and so the Dharma has got to challenge what we've been doing. It's got to hit at our affliction-sensitive points to have any effect. Yeah. So if everything is just so nice and I'm feeling so good in my practice, then we may not be growing so much. Yeah. But when we're in difficulties... That makes us grow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. He's going to talk a little bit about that in the upcoming verses. But really, uh, going into difficulties uh, can be very good. I think I've said before that, you know, it, it means that whatever plateau we were on before is no longer sufficient and we're ready to go deeper and really grow some more. Yeah. So you go you go in crisis for a while. Ah, I don't know what I'm doing. What am I doing? I don't know why I'm here. This is all crazy. Ah. Well, that can be good. <laughs> now, I know you don't really believe that when you're in it, but 
it makes you really look at things and question and think of what the antidotes are and apply the antidotes. Yeah? Whereas when you're just cruising along, Dharma is so nice, I think I've got it all under control now. You know, my afflictions aren't going to come out. Everybody here is going to think that I'm just really mellow. Yeah. Well, then, then what, then you're stuck, aren't you? In complacency. And you remember complacency is one of the 20 auxiliary afflictions. Okay, so we were on 91. Let's um, go back to 90 to pick up. So the honor of praise and, and fame. Oh, I adore that honor of praise and fame. May everybody praise me. May I be held in respect by everybody. Okay, so the first line sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, just read the first line. The honor of praise and fame. Yes, that's what I want. Then he socks it to us. Will not re- will not turn into merit or life. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. He's right. Doesn't increase my merit. Doesn't increase my lifespan. Okay, it will give me neither strength nor freedom from sickness. So it doesn't make my body stronger. It doesn't make my mind any stronger. It doesn't free me from sickness. Yeah. And will not provide any physical happiness. Yeah. So you're physically unhappy and you think that your praise and fame is going to make you feel better. Yeah or that it will cure what ails you. No? Okay. That's like taking ivermectin for for COVID. (laughs) You know, it's not going to work. Okay, then verse 91. If I were aware of what held meaning for me, what value would I find in these things? So that's the kind of question we have to put to ourselves. Okay. If I were really, not just on the level of my mouth, but in my heart, really aware of what was meaningful in life, then what use are fame and honor? Yeah? They don't do anything for us. Really, they seem to. And we we seem to believe in ourselves if other people have honor and respect for us. But really, so what? Yeah, it's sentient beings whose minds are under the affliction, under the influence of afflictions. And we're taking what their thoughts as truth that if they think I'm wonderful, I am. But their minds are completely polluted by ignorance and afflictions. Why am I thinking they're speaking some kind of truth? Why am I turning to them for refuge to tell me that I'm a good person, 
that I'm loved and cared for and da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, really, you know, if we really have a Buddhist worldview on life, why are we looking at that stuff? It doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, so not just reading this question, but really sit with this question, you know. I were aware of what held meaning for me. So what does hold meaning for me? Yeah? I may be saying, oh, my spiritual path holds meaning. But does it? Or am I just saying that? And if it does, let's find that spot in my heart that really knows that that's true. Yeah? on my spiritual path and taming my mind, those are what's meaningful for me. So coming back to that again and again and again in our lives, not just thinking, oh, I found Buddhism, I took refuge, now I got that all settled. Then Shantideva continues, If all I want is a little mental happiness, I should devote myself to gambling, drinking, and so forth. Yeah? So if we check inside, you know, what holds meaning for me? Having a good time with my friends. Yeah? That's meaningful. Having a good time with my friends. Yeah? Having a nice, loving family. I'm being acknowledged for my contributions at work. Having financial security. Yeah? That means this is what people in the world see as what holds meaning for them in in their lives. Yeah? So you work really hard so you can have entertainment and having, you know, that kind of happiness. So... Shanti Deva says, well, if that's your real goal, then, then you know, uh, don't strain yourself on the Dharma. Uh, you know, go drinking and drugging, go to the disco, whatever is your thing. You know, we all have different things, you know. So you might think, well, I'm not one of those people who likes to go drinking and drugging into the disco. I go commune with nature. And that gives meaning for me. I know all the different kinds of bugs and the frogs, and I love walking by the streams. Yeah, what's wrong with that? Nature is spiritual. I love art. I love music. I love poetry. So what's meaningful? What's meaningful? Does being a Buddhist mean you never walk in nature or you never have like art and poetry and music? So I think we have to look at these things. 
Yeah. Why do I turn to certain things? What do I turn to and why do I turn to it? Yeah. So we're not saying that the arts are bad. We're not saying nature's bad. Yeah. But there's different motivations for turning to those things. Because we can turn to them for distraction, for comfort, or we can turn to them as things that really uh, help our spiritual practice. So there's different motivations. So again, don't just look at the external activity. Look at our motivation and how that activity is affecting our mind. So it doesn't mean we don't have friends anymore. Yeah, we're social creatures. But how do we relate to friends and family? What is meaningful to us? And so here, you know, Shantideva says, if all you're wanting is just a little mental happiness of this life, in other words, the mind is focused on this life's happiness, then you don't need to struggle so much. Yeah, just go drinking and drugging and dancing and gambling and, you know, whatever you like to do to distract yourself. Okay. So, of course, there's going to be times when we deliberately distract ourselves. We are not Buddhists yet. Okay. But let's at least be honest with ourselves, you know, when we're distracting ourselves, and at least try and create some kind of good motivation. And, you know, really come come back again and again to what's meaningful to us in our lives. Yeah. So we, we just uh, left another Christmas behind with all sorts of wishes for, I wish somebody would give me this, I wish somebody would give me that. Have I dropped enough hints about what I want? Yeah. And did we get it? And has it made us happy? And how many times when you were little did you get presents and you played with them, you know, for a few days, and then they joined the pile of other toys in the back of your room. (laughs) But you spent a few months before Christmas letting everybody know that you wanted that particular toy. But then once you got it, you know, we play with it a few times, and then it goes, yeah, we just stack it together. So they they say that, like with the kitty toys, you know, that we shouldn't leave all the kitty toys out, yeah? Leave a few out. When they get tired of those, take them away so they don't see them and put new ones. Then when they get tired of those, take the new ones out, put the old ones back, and the kitties think that they're new and want to play with them again, Okay. So this actually pertains not just to kitties, but to us. Yeah? Because if we have something, we play with it, then we get tired of it. Yeah? 
So we need somebody to maybe hide it away from us and then give us some new plaything that we use for a few weeks. And then we get tired of that one and somebody comes along and hides that, gives us the old one back and we say, oh, this is great. Yeah. This is our mind. Yeah. Yeah. So it applies not only to adult, you know, what we see as our toys, but our clothes. Yeah. And oh, when you get something new you wear, you just feel so good. Yeah, then after a couple of weeks, forget it. Yeah. But as long as it's in your closet, it's on the forgotten list. Doesn't bring me happiness anymore. But if you don't see it for a while, yeah, and then you, you see it again. Oh, yeah, that's very nice. I want to use it. So very economical this way. You don't spend nearly as much money on buying stuff you don't need. And it works, you know, as shown. Do you remember, those of you from DFF, when we did the exercise of cleaning out uh, at least, you know, either one dresser or, or one closet? And everything that you haven't used in a year, give away. And people found all sorts of stuff in their closet that they didn't even know they had. Okay? So if it had disappeared while they had forgotten that they had it, it wouldn't have bothered them. But once they saw it again, oh, this T-shirt reminds me of the trip I took to Mexico with this friend. Then you look at it, now you don't want to give the T-shirt away. Yeah, but if somebody had uh, taken it a week ago when you forgot you had it, you would never even have thought twice about it. Okay, so if all I want is a little mental happiness, I should devote myself to gambling, drinking, and what else do you do? Yes? Listening to music? Mm. Yeah, what do you do? News. News, yeah. What else? Huh? Eating. <laughs> yeah. What else? Looking for recipes. <laughs> Looking for recipes? Okay. <laughs> what else? Checking the water. Weather. Weather. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> How come everybody's talking about what I do except the checking the recipe part <laughs> and the listening to the music part? Okay, but yeah, it's it's good. Think of these things. Ninety-two. If for the sake of fame, I give away my wealth or get myself killed, what can the mere words of fame do then? Once I have died, to whom will they give pleasure? Okay, so for the sake of fame, I give away my wealth. You know, not in charity, but maybe uh, to pay for lawyers who will 
um, procrastinate thing in the court so that my true financial situation doesn't come out or all the naughty things that I've done to cheat people doesn't come out. So I've given away all my wealth to these lawyers, yeah, so that I could protect my image in society. I look very good, yeah, I'm a billionaire, I own this and that, and I have the most gorgeous hair. Okay, so I give away my wealth or I get myself killed, yeah, so for the sake of fame, yeah, there, who was that guy? There were two, uh, bi big buildings in New York and they had a cable between them and walked across. Or did some guy recently ac across the Niagara Falls from one side to the other on, on just a cable? And, uh, people who drive, um, now some people are going to get really upset with me. Um, yeah, <laughs> hitting what? driving motorcycles, but racing cars, you know? You love to get in that race car that's painted with all the advertising on the on the edge, you know? And go, right on the gas and like the, the noise that comes out. I mean, some people love the noise. And you go tearing off and somebody else goes tearing off and you go around the curves and you go around this and they're ahead. Now you're ahead. Your adrenaline is going and then bong and you crash and the car catches on fire and you die. But you're famous as a race car driver. And everybody remembers you because you died. You know, you went out blazing. Literally. Yeah. Or you, you want to climb Mount Everest? Yeah, that's the big thing. You've got to climb Mount Everest. And you die going up or you die coming down. Yeah. There's many bodies frozen in the snow on the path up to Everest. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you look what, what we do, okay? So if for the sake of fame I give away my wealth or get myself killed, yeah, what can the mere words of fame do then? So even you've written your own obituary and they publish it in, in the newspaper, so it's signed, stamped, and delivered by yourself, praising yourself from end to end. Or maybe your best friend writes the obit, and it's even better than the one you wrote for yourself. Yeah, and you're already famous, and so they put you in Time magazine. No, in, in, uh, New York Times. Yeah, and the obit quality of a column of New York Times because you were the first person who invented the taps that they put on tap shoes. And that was an incredible thing that you did for humanity. And, you know, you deserve, you know, an incredible obituary for it. Yeah. And uh, what good does it do you? Yeah. Where are you? 
Well, who you were does no, lo- no longer exist. Yeah, so your future continuum is now in some other rebirth. Yeah. Do you think that when you're reborn, you're, you're looking back and saying, oh, finally they appreciate me and I have this wonderful obit in, in the New York Times. Yeah, finally the world appreciates me. Yeah, is that how we think of what's going to happen after we die? Yeah, that maybe after we die, all of, everybody's going to come together, and they're all going to be singing our praises, and they're, they're going to cry because they miss us so much, and sing our praises, and we think we'll be hovering over the in the air above the. Uh, memorial service. Yeah, there I am, hovering, eavesdropping to everybody saying how wonderful I was. Do you think that's what happens after you die? Yeah, in our fantasy, yes. In reality, no. Okay. So we're already in, chances are, either in the bardo or in some other rebirth. And we're having our own thing to deal with in that situation. There's no time to get distracted to what was going on in this life. Anyway, you know, we have no ability to perceive what's going on in this life anyway. Yeah, do you think babies have are, are thinking about their previous life and know what's going on in their previous life? Do you think when kittens are born... They have an awareness of who they were in their previous life, and they're rejoicing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, some baby is born, and the baby's sitting there thinking, Mama, Papa, you got, you got so fortunate for me as a child. You should tune in to how my previous life is getting praised right now. And you got me this lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. So now, Mama, Papa, you can, you can brag to everybody that your baby is the one who invented the taps for tap shoes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's what happens? I mean, we in- invent fantasies. Don't we? Huh? And especially after we die, everybody who hasn't appreciated us is now going to come to see how valuable we were in their lives and how much they owe to us. But I sacrificed all that for them when I was alive because they insulted me and they criticized me. But now... They're praising me, and I'm famous. Yeah. And the commentary to that says, so what? So what can the mere words of fame do then? 
Once I have died, to whom will they give pleasure? Yeah. So we spend our life creating non-virtue. We're born as a dog. Do you think the dog hears the praise of the human being they used to be? And that's why they wag their tail in this lifetime. Because <laughs> they're hearing the praise of their previous life. These are very good, powerful verses to meditate on. Because it really shows us how stupid honor and fame are. You know? And then our mind will say, okay, in future lives it doesn't benefit me. In the bardo it doesn't benefit me. But now a good reputation benefits me. How does it benefit me? Because if I have a good reputation, then even before people will meet, meet me, they already know how wonderful I am. Then you say to yourself, how does that benefit me? Yeah, I'm famous, so people know my name before they meet me. I'm, I don't know who, you know. Donnie Jr.? I'm Donnie Jr. I'm Taylor Swift. Who's the one who's having so many problems with her father? Some famous movies. Oh, yeah, Britney Spears. Okay, I don't know. What does, she, what does she do? She's famous for something. I think it's the controversy with her father that makes her famous. <laughs> Has she done anything else? She's a singer? Oh, okay. La, la, la. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so everybody knows. And then, you know, she walks into the room every, Brittany, you suffered so much from your father being a, what was he? A con- uh, Conservator, that was the word, yeah, and managed all her money and, and things like that. You suffered so much. We were fans of you, you know. We so much wanted you to be free of that, yeah, and now you're free. Yeah, is that, yeah? Then, then she goes, oh yes, everybody was rooting for me. I'm loved. But people didn't even know her. Do you really feel loved when you're famous? People have, don't know you at all. All they know is a plastic image of who you've tried to make yourself look like. But they don't know you. They don't care about you. They care about whoever you've invented yourself to be. Yeah. And we all... I think Marilyn Monroe is a good example of that. My goodness, what suffering. Yeah. And yet she invented herself to be this incredible icon. Yeah. So, you know, think about this and, and what, we're, what we're trying to do. You know, and what really is our value in our lives? How does a little bit of fame and glory do anything for you in this life? 
Yeah. Actually, what you do is you become the object of other people's projections. And I see this also. You know, some people come into Buddhism and think, oh, yeah, oh, Tibetans, they have reincarnations. Maybe I'm actually a Rinpoche and they haven't identified me yet. Yeah. Yeah. I think every, almost everybody goes through that stage, you know. Yeah, I have some deep feeling for the Dharma. I think, yeah, maybe I was a Rinpoche. They, they haven't found me yet. Yeah. And then think about it. Do you really want to be a Rinpoche? If you've ever, you know, I've lived in the household of the incarnation of one of my teachers. I mean, what they go through, it's difficult. Yeah. Everybody projects on them from the time they're born, from the time they're identified. You, you become the objects of everybody's projections. Yeah. And you're just trying to live your life and everybody wants something from you. And it's not that they want the Dharma with a pure motivation. They want you to recognize them from because you knew each other from a past life. Yeah. I remember going to meet the incarnation of, of one of my teachers, and afterwards people said, Did he remember you? As if that's that's the big thing. Yeah. So what? He remembered me, he didn't remember me. It doesn't really matter, does it? Why am I coming? Why am I going to the teachings? Is it to be remembered? Uh, yeah. Especially when they have thousands of disciples. I'm going to be the one that's remembered. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, verse 93. This verse I really love. This verse... Uh, puts it all together, okay? When their sandcastles collapse, children howl in despair. Likewise, when my praise and reputation decline, my mind becomes like a little child. Do you remember being a kid at the beach? Yeah? Yeah, we went go to the beach in the summer, and we would build castles. And it's true. Yeah, the wave comes in, and your sand castle that you spent three hours building, and it was so beautiful, just gets washed away. You know, and you're just as a child overwhelmed. That was my beautiful sand castle. Yeah. So, you know, when fame and reputation are the purpose of our life, then when we don't get them or they get damaged, it's just like our sandcastle getting washed away when we were kids. Yeah? 
Do you remember that, sitting on the beach? Yeah. With the water around you and the sand. You're a sandcastle. <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay, I love this verse because it's so apt, isn't it? You know? I mean, literally we did that, but also figuratively, all the things that we're clinging on to that we want recognition for in this life. Yeah? You, you don't get them, or you get them and then somebody's better than you, or you get them and then somebody criticizes you for it. Yeah? Then we're really like, oh, my sandcastle. Okay, 94. Since short-lived sounds of praise and, you know, honor uh, are inanimate, they cannot possibly think of praising me. So when you ask yourself what, what are pra- what's praise and what's a good reputation, yeah, it's either sounds, wave, you know, sound waves, you know, remember these things? that you learned about in science class. Yeah? So they're either sounds or they're other people's thoughts. Okay? So how how do other people's thoughts make us happy? How do sound waves make us happy? Okay? So since shortwave sounds are inanimate, they cannot possibly think of praising me. Yeah, they don't praise me. They're just sound waves. And what's really interesting is some, if we don't understand, you know, if somebody's talking in Swahili and says, I hate your guts, you're such a dimwit, but they say it in Swahili with a nice voice, we'll get all puffed up. Because it sounds good, but if we understood what they were actually saying, we would have a fit. We're very gullible. (laughs) Yeah? Just the nice sounds. Okay? But they can't possibly think of praising me. Now, Then the other side of our mind says, but it makes the person who's praising me happy. So my reputation is a source of pleasure uh, for them, and it's it's a source of pleasure for me. So what's what's wrong with it? Yeah, if praising... Uh, me makes the other person happy, that's good. And it also makes me happy. Yeah? So my my good reputation is important because it makes two people happy, me and the person who praises me. And then if more and more people praise me, then more and more people are happy. And that's What I'm trying to do with my bodhisattva vow is make sentient beings happy. Try again, kid. That one doesn't work. 
Okay. Because Shanti Deva says in reply to that one, whether this praise is directed at myself or someone else, how shall I be benefited by the joy of the one who bestows it? So if, the, if somebody praises me, Sam over here praises me or he praises all of you. Either way, okay, Sam's feeling happy because when you praise other people, you feel happy. You know, you're seeing good qualities and you, yeah, you feel good. So Sam is getting the pleasure from whether he praises me or praises you, okay? So how shall I be benefited by the joy of the one who gives the praise, okay? So if Sam's praising me and feeling happy about it, how do I benefit from his happiness? Because this is the answer in response to the last two lines of the previous verse, where we're saying, well, my reputation of praise is important because it makes somebody else happy to point it out. And Shantideva says, well, how does their happiness help me? Okay. Since their uh, since that joy and happiness is theirs alone, so it's Sam's happiness for, that he experienced from praising me, since that joy and happiness is Sam's alone, I shall never obtain even a part of it. So the whole world can praise me and everybody feels happy, but I don't receive any of that happiness. Okay, so you're on stage, there you are, you're Britney Spears, you did some kind of fantastic performance, everybody is applauding, cheering, yay, whistling, you know, they're already buying a tickets for your next thing, and the price has been raised, so you're going to really make a ton of money with the next thing, and you are on a roll, and your career is going good, and your voice is out there, and everybody feels sorry for you because your father, you know, was taking all your money, and you have it made. And Shanti Deva says, well, since all the happiness of your fans is their happiness, Brittany, how are you benefiting from it? Yeah? You're standing on that stage like a needy little child saying, I don't believe in myself. Please yell and scream and whistle and tell me I'm wonderful because I don't really believe in myself. Yeah? So you see, the, the thing isn't Praise and fame and reputation, that is not solving the problem of not believing in ourselves. And it's not going to give us good, self, good self-esteem, okay? Because we don't, if we don't like ourselves, then even everybody else thinks we're wonderful. We think they're a bunch of liars or they're stupid. Because they, if they really knew what I was really like, they wouldn't think this way about me. 
Okay. So the, what's curing it is not the praise. What's going to cure that inside of us is not praise from other people. It's, it's really getting in touch with our own good qualities, respecting ourselves, and knowing that we can make a positive contribution to the world. And our contribution doesn't need to be better than everybody else's. Okay, but just knowing that we have a way to bring joy and happiness uh, in other people's lives and in the world. And so we have confidence in ourselves. And we don't have to be the best. Because anyway, what does the best mean? And who is the judge of the best? Okay. Because Brittany, you're Brittany, and you got on the top of the charts. And then next week, who's on top of the charts? I don't know any of these people. Yeah. Oh, Lady Gaga. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, next week, Lady Gaga's on top of the charts. And everybody's forgotten about Brittany. Yeah. And maybe in a few decades, some college student who's really desperate for a PhD topic is going to, you know, investigate your life and write about your career. And then at the end of their PhD, it's going to say, but then Lady Gaga beat her on the charts. And Brittany was destroyed. Yeah. So, but it's true, isn't it? If we think about this and we think about how much, you know, we sought praise and what it did for us. Okay. So, so we, for those of you who don't know, we have a little club at the Abbey. It's called the High Achievers Neurotic Society. Okay. So, you know, for high achievers in whichever field you want, you could be the chief collector of grasshoppers, but if you are a high achiever in wanting fame for collecting grasshoppers, yeah, and that's how you get your... And you work hard day and night, and you dream about grasshoppers, (laughs) you can join our society. Yeah, we even will give you a certificate. Yeah. I'm president. You're vice president. Oh. You're the secretary. You're the vice president? Okay, and you're, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, and I think you're um, applying for membership. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, yeah, anybody who wants to be a high achiever neurotic, we welcome you. (laughs) Yeah.
Okay, so since that joy and happiness belongs to the person who praises me, and it's theirs alone, I shall not obtain a, even a part of it. Anyway, I'm on the beach, stamping my feet, crying over my sandcastle. Okay. My parents took a, um, you know, one of the, what, those old movies that they used to have, you know? Um, what are they called? You know, the... Yeah, maybe eight millimeters. Yeah, is that what they had when we were little? Anyway, you know, home movies. Yeah. So I was, I must have been like four or five. And you know the kind of skates? Oh, some of you are too young to know these skates. But they, they used to in the days of the dinosaurs. Instead of having skates that where the boots and the wheels were attached and you just put your foot into the boot... The skates were just the wheels, and they had little clips that were supposed to go on over, you know, that you clipped to your tennis shoes or whatever you were wearing, okay? So I was trying to put my skates on and get the clips and keep the skates on, you know. But those clips didn't keep the skates on. You didn't have a key? You remember the keys? Oh, you had a key. Well, I don't know. No, I must have tried that. And I was trying to skate, but you know how when you try and skate, you walk? <laughs> yeah. And so I was doing that, and of course, I fell down, and the skate fell off. And I had a temper tantrum, and my dad had the camera right there. Because <laughs> I was supposed to skate, and he was going to film that, but... He got the temper tantrum instead. Okay? So, um, yeah. I don't know what happened to that movie. 96. If I do find happiness in their happiness for praising me, then surely I should feel the same way towards all. And if this were so, why... Am I unhappy when others find pleasure in that which brings them joy? Okay, so if I do find happiness in Sam's happiness of praising me, yeah, then I should also feel happy when he praises the person I don't like, when he praises my competitor. Okay, and in fact, I, I'm just, very unhappy that he finds joy in praising other people. Okay? So all the people who abandoned Brittany to go for Lady Gaga and who are going to abandon Lady Gaga and go for... Who? Who? Billy Eilish. Who? <laughs> Billy Eilish. So, if I find happiness in Sam's happiness, then whoever he praises, whatever he does, even if it's somebody I don't like, I should be happy too. But I'm not. I'm jealous. I'm burning with jealousy. Ninety-seven. 
Therefore, the happiness that arises from thinking I am being praised is invalid. It is only the behavior of a child. Ooh, does he have to make it so blatant (laughs) that I'm just being like a spoiled brat when I want some praise and honor and, you know, be outstanding for something? Only the behavior of a child. Okay, then 98. Now he's going to hit it to us more. Do you notice there's a lot of verses about praise and reputation? That's because we're quite attached to them. Yeah. 98. Praise and so forth distract me and also undermine my disillusion with cyclic existence. I start to envy those who have good qualities, and the very best is destroyed. So it's true. Praise, yeah, praise and all my little performances, all my little manipulations, what I do to get praised, yeah, when I get that praise, it uh, undermines my disillusionment with samsara. Okay? So I've worked hard because I'm a member of the High Achievers Neurotic Society, or I've manipulated people to think that I'm wonderful and I've gotten it. Okay? And actually, what I've gotten is, you know, a reduction in my disillusionment with samsara. And the thought that, oh, samsara is really good. And I'm on the top of the world now. I'm on the top of the list. And everybody thinks I'm wonderful. And the money's coming in. And what could be better? And so, you know, when we're Dharma practitioners, um, we want to be disillusioned with samsara. Okay. Now, it is sobering. That, that disillusionment is sobering. And we fight it sometimes. Because on another level, we don't want to be disillusioned with samsara. We want to be able to tweak our samsara so that it's better. Okay. So I'm disillusioned with everything that I don't like. <laughs> that doesn't take much, does it? Yeah. But I'm not disillusioned with what I want. Because I think what I want and don't yet have is going to bring me actual happiness. Whereas a lot of the stuff I wanted and now I have is not filling that hole inside of me anymore. Okay? So as Dharma practitioners, we want to be disillusioned. Now, that isn't the kind of disillusions you're talking about, about Billy Eyelashes, <laughs> you know, songs. It isn't that when you're disillusioned with samsara, you know, you're just down in the dump and crying and and contemplating suicide, okay? When you're disillusioned with samsara, your mind is very sober and very clear. 
Yeah, you're not depressed because this is a wisdom mind that sees samsara accurately. Yeah? If you're depressed, it means that you still think samsara is a pleasure grove and you're trying to get what you want in it. Yeah? But depression and having a a very sober, clear mind are really different. Because when your mind is sober and clear, you're just, you're there and you are aware of what's happening. And you're not fooled by the glitter. And you don't bother getting annoyed at other people. Yeah, because, you know, you realize that getting getting what you want or stopping them doing from what you don't like is it's not going to do anything for you so why waste your time and energy on it okay when i lived in dharmasala my, my the person in in the next concrete room <laughs> over from me yeah we all lived in concrete rooms um she liked to play her radio and she played it loud, and I could hear it. And, you know, I would be trying to do my practices, and then her radio's going. And it just, it drove me buggy, okay? And I would sometimes try and say something pleasant. Please, could you turn it down? And we'll go down for a few minutes and then back up again. But when um, my teacher, during that st- time, he started... Uh, teaching Shanti, um, Aryadeva's The 400. And he was, he got to the chapter, I think it's chapter two or three, on death and impermanence. And so every afternoon we were going in for classes and hearing impermanence, death, impermanence, death. And I was coming back and meditating on that. And my mind got so calm and peaceful for meditating on death. Yeah? Because it really clarified what was important and what was not. And my neighbor playing her radio loud was not important. Yeah? I didn't want to waste my time and energy getting mad at her or annoyed by the sound or anything. Yeah? And it was amazing. I was so startled. I never thought that meditating on impermanence and death would make my mind so peaceful. But it did. Yeah? So when we're disillusioned with samsara, yeah, that, that's what happens. And, and then, yeah, we don't get hooked in and enchanted and giddy over samsara's seeming tantalizations that are being, you know, uh, swayed before us. Okay. So praise and so forth distract me and also undermine my disillusionment with with cyclic existence. Uh, So that's one disadvantage of attachment to praise and, and reputation. Plus... I start to envy those who have good qualities. Okay? So I'm in competition 
with other people for the praise and reputation. Because if those are things that are valuable to you, you have to compete with other people to get them. So whether you're competing with your brother or sister, or whether you're competing with, um, you know, 10,000 people at a, uh, a beauty contest, yeah, you know, you're still in competition. And we start to envy people who are better than us. Yeah. And envy makes us more miserable. Okay. Envy doesn't bring any happiness. We get more miserable when we're empty. Okay. And empty and envy, jealousy make us say things and do things that create negative karma. Yeah. We start praising ourselves and blaming others out of jealousy and an attempt to make ourselves look better. Okay. And for what? I read the um, one guy who was, I I had never heard of this before, that they have Mr., in just the way they have Miss Universe uh, contest, they have Mr. World contest. And one of the Mr. Worlds, who was, you know, so famous before, just died. And so they had pictures of him. And, you know, I mean, he he worked out with, with weights and everything, and these enormous muscles, you know, and like very thin waist, and then very big hair, and very big muscles, and his legs, everything bulging except his waist. And then you know, standing, he had, they had to stand in some kind of weird position, kind of with one leg bent and like this. And I don't know. But you guys who, who watched it, you know how they, maybe you could stand up and, and illustrate for us how Mr. World used to stand. Okay, yeah, one of the guys, you want to. <laughs> Who's volunteering? So, um, <laughs> so uh, you know, and, and to me, you know, and he, he was like really big. I mean, just super, super famous. Um, but he quit the competitions when he was 28 because he hated the competitions. But he loved, uh, you know, doing all of this. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't like the competitions. So that was interesting. He didn't like, he wasn't looking for the fame and so forth. He just liked the physical sensation of, of being very fit. But all these other people were just like, wow, look at Mr. World's bodies. I thought he was ugly, actually. You know, I don't see that as anything good-looking. But apparently some people do. Um, okay, so, so you know, he, he was Mr. World, and then he quit the competition, but everybody still, like, would, you know, wanted to see what he looked like. And then what do you get for all that hard work? You spent... I wonder how many hours in his life he spent lifting iron. Yeah? And then what happens at the end of it? You die. 
Yeah. And then you're in, you know, I don't know if they even could find a coffin that he would fit into, (laughs) you know, because he was so big. Yeah. And, you know, everybody walks past you. Oh. So what? You're Mr. World. So what? You're Miss Universe. Okay. Yeah, it just reminds me of Nancy Reagan who planned her whole funeral. Yeah, we've talked about this before. You know, you have your hair done so that when people look at you in, in your coffin, you look nice. Yeah, you're embalmed and you have makeup and your hair is done. Yeah, and you have wearing some great clothes. So interesting, yeah, how people so attached to the body that they even want to look good when they're a corpse. But what good is our corpse? And what are you going to do with the dead corpse? When we see corpses, we go, ooh. Yeah, nobody goes, oh, yeah, I want that. Can I take it home with me? No, we look at a corpse and go, ugh. So why are we so attached to what we're going to look like as a corpse? I think the way the Tibetans did it, of feeding the the corpses to to the vultures, I think that's smart. You know, recycle your body. Let somebody get some pleasure out of it rather than pump it full of all these chemicals so you look good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I start to envy those who have good qualities and all the very best is destroyed. So, you know, we fall into the eight worldly concerns again. Yeah. Craving four of the eight and having aversion to the other four and without any disillusionment for samsara. Okay, so I want to pause here in case there's questions or comments. Yeah. Although we may not know about our past lives, those whom we knew may still bear feelings about us after we're gone, and it could affect them if reports of our actions are modified after our demise. So wouldn't that justify caring about a public image to some extent? Hmm. So the the question is, uh, tell me if I got it right, that some people may think bad about us, but because they have wrong information, so wouldn't it be good to make sure that we did, uh, that we fixed those relationships or we had a good obit? Because it would ease the the mind of that person who was mad to at help us. to help reduce their negative thoughts. Maybe it would be somehow beneficial to them karmically. 
Okay. So if that's the thing, then what you need to do is um, purify. You know, do the four opponent powers, change your attitude towards that person, have regret for whatever you contributed to the situation of them having bad feelings towards you. Not saying it was your fault, but, you know, you may have done something that, uh, yeah, hit somebody in the wrong place, you know, or triggered something in them. And uh, you need to fix these kinds of things while you're alive. And so go to the person or people that, uh, you know, have negative feelings towards you and apologize. Yeah. And from your side, forgive them for uh, whatever their part in it was. Yeah. Because after you're dead, you can't do anything. Caring about your reputation after you're dead doesn't doesn't do anything. So if if you know people are having negative thoughts about you now, and you care about their minds having those negative thoughts because you don't want them to suffer, and uh, or create negative karma, then do your part in purification and then apologize to them or go talk to them and give them the right information. Am I answering the question? Um, she says she's not being clear on the question, so. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sounded to me that it was some concern about the people who are left behind having to hear negative things about you and what that effect would be on their minds. Oh, oh, I see. So the people you care about are hearing negative things about you. Yeah, and that then, uh, yeah, you want to protect, and they would feel hurt from it. Well, again, you should try and fix that as best as you can when you're alive. Not because you want to have a good reputation, but because you just want things to be clear and you don't, you know. But anyway, if people are close to you and they know you well, even somebody criticizes you, it's not going to matter much to them. Yeah, because if they know you well, they probably won't believe it. I think what's interesting to me is in the past when I had these momentary thoughts of wanting fame or something, then to look at the tragedies of people who are just cheered and screamed at by thousands, yeah. tens of thousands of people around the planet, and they go to drug abuse and alcohol abuse and suicide. Yeah. And how even that kind of attention cannot fill that hole that's just bottomless, and that is so yeah. tragic. Yeah. And if, if indeed it was going to bring them happiness, then there should be not a single case of anyone taking any kind of substance. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. Many of those people are deeply involved with, with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Sports stars, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm also related to... I, th I thought about this when meditating, say, on the kindness of others. Like, anybody who's famous, whether a race car driver, a toku, a 
top athlete, a top singer, uh, there's a whole team around them, mm-hmm. right? That supports them and helps them, right? Yeah. Phys- everything from the physiotherapist who's waiting for the athlete after, you know, the success is never one person's amazing talent, even though they like to believe that. But yeah. all these people around you are completely invested in your success. Yeah. And the moment you do not produce another A or another top score, they all freak out, right? Or there's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And it perverts all the relationships around you too. Yeah. Because you are, like you say, you, you don't have any autonomy. You have to deliver. Um, yeah. Or it screws up how you understand love and affection. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why the people who are extremely famous then are very miserable. Yeah. 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 And we see that with the Olympics very clearly. How the, the people go in and there's definitely is a team around them and everybody back home is rooting for them, you know, and watching them when they're doing their, you know, swimming or whatever it is or backflips. And then, you know, if they win, yay, everybody back home is happy. But, you know, there's how many people com- competing and one person wins and then the teams behind, the relatives behind everybody else are miserable. And then you feel miserable because you disappointed the people who were caring for you. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Um, I just wanted to just comment as a segue. Um, it's interesting how we're looking, I was looking at it from the side of the person who's famous, but how it is that we create these identities on the other side and that how we project them and I was thinking of that example of missed universe and the but the how we enforce that binary and how there's all of this projection that we project to what we are doing with our minds Mm -hmm. and that was a really good example of the how we create these binaries in our mind and then also how we create whatever it is that we need to have project what that means to us on that on that projection because it's just the projection of the famous i was looking at it also as that interdependent yeah quality of the yeah 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 and so you've made somebody else in in your mind very famous and then there's a certain you know of the different kinds of pride there's the pride of being affiliated with somebody who is who excels so then, you know, maybe you're just the back team that gives the athlete the massage or, you know, or schedules their appointments or whatever it is. But then you get reputation because you can say, I was so-and-so. I was Mr. World's, um, you know, appointment maker or masseuse or uh, the guy who, who bought his tennis shoes for him, you know. And then you get pleasure by association with somebody that you projected to be fantastic. There's also something in the in the analysis of what actually talent is, and like I, I know it no used to know a child prodigy who was an incredible musician, and the pressure on that kid as soon as it was recognized, I mean, she eventually had a nervous breakdown at like 14 and never yeah. went forward. But but then what we do when we see anything that's exceptional. Um, 
as a you know just as human beings what we do with that also makes the value of that supposed gift a gifted person becomes kind of a cursed person in many ways yeah yeah it's really sad yeah, yeah. we think fame is that if people think we're wonderful we are wonderful but it turns out that yeah we often f- feel worse being famous Talent is what your value is as a human being. Yeah. Nobody really cares about you. They're just using you. In verse 97 where he says, um, thinking about I'm being praised, Mm -hmm. like you have that thought and that thought gives you mental happiness. Mm -hmm. You're saying it's invalid. Could you explain why? Because, I mean, is it because it's dependent on others' praise so it's not stable? Or is it because, you know, the I is empty of inherent existence or? All, all those things, okay. So the, it says that the happiness that arises from thinking I am being praised, it's invalid. Why? Well, first of all, as it's come out, it's just a projection. People are making some big deal about you, but you're just Joe Blow, okay. And, the you know, as soon as you get high, you're going to fall down, you know. Nobody stays high forever. So also some people are going to be jealous of you. The people who like you are probably going to like you for what they can get out of you or get out of being associated with you. Yeah, you start competing with other people and you're jealous of the people who are better than you. Yeah, so all this thing of being praised, it, it really, you know, it's when you look at it from a Dharma viewpoint or even a worldly viewpoint, it's really not worth much because, you know, we're thinking it's gonna, it's gonna change that whole feeling of being insufficient and unloved. And it doesn't. Yeah. Because that's only an internal feeling that we alone can change in ourselves. Nobody else can do it for us. Yeah. So we may do a lot of, you know, backflips trying to get praised. But at the end, the praise doesn't really do what we want it to do. So, better try looking inside and seeing our good qualities. And, you know, there's nothing to get proud of because we have good qualities. They all came due to the kindness of other people who taught us and encouraged us. But it means we do have something that we can give to other people and give to society. And that's something to... uh to be confident about and to take delight in. Yeah? And we don't need to compete with anybody else. Yeah? Because, again, competition, it's, it's suffering, isn't it? When you're always competing with somebody else to be better than them or to be more noticed than them or whatever it is. Okay. We'll stop here.
Yeah, so spend some time thinking about praise and, you know, how you relate to praise. And think that as soon as you're, I mean, as soon as we are hooked with praise, we're also going to become radioactive regarding blame. Okay? So those two things go together. And, you know, just look at what this attachment to praise and aversion to blame, what it brings in your life. And, you know, is it... Is that attachment really doing anything good for you? And that's one of the things, you know, when you ordain, a lot of the things that you used to get praised for, you no longer get praised for. And it's a tr- it's, it kind of shakes you up for a while. Yeah, because especially if you were attached to how you look, well, now you look like everybody else. But you try and get the right kind of shoes so you look a little bit different. You know, or you, you get that, that green jeweled mala, that, that, yeah. And, you know, so people notice your mala and they think you're really good. Yeah, or you get the robes that are, you know, really kind of shiny, and maybe you put a little bit of brocade in that, too. Woo! Yeah? Yeah? And and then you, you, you know, but nobody notices you. You look like everybody else. Yeah. But you try and make yourself noticeable. You know? People come to the Abbey, and they look at me and say, Hi, Venerable Semke. <laughs> like, yeah, hi. <laughs> I, I was at the hospital when I went for some tests a couple of weeks ago. I, I've been meaning to tell you, one lady named Michelle came up to me. I thought, hi, I haven't seen you in so long. How are you? I love coming to the Abbey. As soon as COVID's over, I'm going to come. Michelle, okay, so I talked, I just pretended, I figured it must have been you, so I, I just pretended to be Venerable Semke, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go, what's your name, and this is my name, and, you know, <laughs> okay, so it's kind of a, a shock, if, you know. Yeah. And then you think your special talent should be noted. You know, among the Sangha members, I have some special talent and I should be the one because of my previous career to do such and such. Yeah. And then your teacher sends you off to do something else that is not what you think you should be doing and what you want to do. But it's actually exactly what you need to do. Okay. Yeah. Timbuktu, it's over there. (laughs) Go open a Dharma center.